My favorite way to unwind and dive into something more fun is June's Journey. The game lets me channel my inner detective and unlock compelling stories, strong female characters, and a mystery I want to solve. If you like true crime podcasts, it's the perfect game to play along while you listen. The Hidden Object Mystery Game will put your detective skills to the test in the roaring 1920s. You play as June Parker as she tries to solve her sister's murder and along the way uncovers family secrets. Chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Mystery, danger, romance all await you if you download the game now. I'm on chapter four and wondering how these clues will help me crack the case of who did it and why. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. If you love Snapped, Women Who Murder, you're going to love listening to true crime or mystery titles on Audible. The audio title I'm diving into again is one of my favorites to revisit, Mindhunter by John Douglas and Mark Ulshaker. Even if you think you know the details of the cases, former FBI unit chief John Douglas took on from documentaries or the scripted show, the audio title goes above and beyond in bringing you along with him in his career, trying to catch serial killers and serial perpetrators. He used psychological profiling to dive into the minds of notorious criminals. The title includes his hunt for a killer in Alaska, the Green River Killer, and so much more. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. It is the home of storytelling after all. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. That's audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. They were partners in business and in love. They were an adorable couple. Both of them were attractive. She was in love with him. Until one hot summer night, when their romance comes to a fiery end. They'd had a report of a car fire. They found a body basically burned to beyond recognition. It was a grisly scene. Was this the result of a deadly lover's quarrel? He was having a relationship with a married woman. Or was it something far more deliberate and cold-blooded? He came home and police were waiting for him. They found this really frightening history of violence. She had a problem with not being accepted, not being wanted, and I think she took rejection very hard. Passionate relationships can sometimes go from the good kind of passion to the bad kind of passion. It was an evil person doing an evil thing, and there was a great loss due to this horrific incident. July 4th, 1999, Warren County, Ohio. Just before dawn, 911 receives a report of a car on fire in the yard of an abandoned farmhouse. The call came in around 4.13 in the morning. Firefighters arrived and they had no idea what caused this fire. They knew the flames were really high and they could tell by how raging this fire was that it had been set pretty recently. Once the flames are extinguished, firefighters take a closer look at the car's charred ruins and find something gruesome. They found a body in the trunk. 
It was burned to beyond recognition, and they know that at this point, there's some kind of a crime scene. Homicide detectives soon arrive and begin processing the scene. The license plate was actually off of the car, on the ground. A quick search determines that the vehicle is a Ford Mustang registered to a man named Jimmy Timar Jr. Investigators obtain Jimmy Timar's phone number and home address in the city of Deer Park, about 25 miles south. The police called Jimmy, and when they contacted him, of course, they knew that wasn't him in the trunk. Once police realized that Jimmy wasn't in the trunk of the car, they needed to figure out who it was. That's when Jimmy tells police that his 30-year-old brother, Troy Timar, took his car the night before. Jimmy and Troy lived together, and they shared vehicles. Troy had his truck, and Jimmy had a Mustang and they would borrow each other's cars. And Jimmy reported that he'd loaned his car to his brother Troy, and he had not come home that night of July 3rd. They know that Troy is missing, and they quickly begin to add up uh, two and two and come to the conclusion that that's probably his body in the car. Investigators are now tasked with answering some difficult questions. Who would do something like this to Troy, and why? Born in 1969, Troy Lee Timar was raised in the small town of Deer Park, the second oldest of four children. The Timars had lived in the community a long time. They were well known, especially because Troy had been such a star in high school. Troy was uh, homecoming king. He was a great athlete, very popular in high school. Troy was just very outgoing, and I don't know anybody that had anything negative to say about Troy because he was funny and just, he never stopped. He was going a mile a minute. After high school, Troy stayed in Deer Park and gained a solid reputation in construction, eventually working at a company called Capital Construction. He was the project manager at the time for them. Troy would oversee the financing of the projects and Troy would procure the contracts as well as the material. Troy wanted to succeed in, in whatever he did. That included all of his pursuits, even when it came to women. He was a young man who was single, and he had several girlfriends at various times, and sometimes at the same time. But in February 1996, Troy met a woman who would cause the carefree bachelor to finally consider settling down. Her name was Teresa Terry Horline. Terry had a pretty good upbringing. Her dad was a firefighter, um, real respected. She had a younger brother named Donald. She was close to her brothers. The family was wonderful, well-known in Montgomery. Terry and I met in seventh grade. We were in homeroom class together, and we just hit it off. We were just very, had a great friendship. Unlike Troy, Terry wasn't a standout at her high school. Terry was very quiet, but she was very, very pretty. We had a lot of guys at school who were interested in her, um, but she never dated too many people. She wanted to get married, 
right away and wanted to have kids. She didn't talk about college. She didn't talk about doing anything else. But Terry's dream of settling down and starting a family wouldn't come easily. At 32 years old, Terry found herself a twice-divorced single mother just trying to make ends meet. I think she just needed somebody to be with her, and I think that's what she really wanted was a family. Though Terry's love life was tumultuous, she had better luck when it came to her career. She was very good at bookkeeping and accounting. She was a whiz at that. Those skills helped Terry land a job as the office manager and bookkeeper at Capital Construction in 1996, which is where she met Troy Timar. The two young co-workers shared an undeniable connection. Troy and Terry had a lot in common. They were both born in small towns. They were pretty detail-oriented in their work. Both of them were attractive. After a whirlwind romance, Terry moved into Troy's house in Deer Park. He was very in love with Teresa. Everything he did, he, he did a lot for her. They came to work together and they'd go home together and, it's, and he just like he always wanted, he needed to be there for her. For the next two years, the couple's bond only grew stronger, so much so that they decided to go into business together. In January 1998, Troy and Terry started their own construction company out of their home, Team R Construction. Troy wanted to be his own boss. He was a leader. And I think the company was the way to keep them two together every day. Teresa was going to do all the clerical work. She would write the checks out. Troy was the guy to go out to find work. For the first year, the new company thrived. But as work slowed down, projects were harder to come by, and the company struggled. To help stay on top of bills, Terry took a second bookkeeping job with a local plumbing contractor. But in December 1998, Terry ran into some serious trouble at her second job. The owner of that company discovered that some embezzling was going on, and uh, the trail led to Terry. And when he confronted her, she admitted it. Terry pled guilty to felony theft and was put in a program to make restitution. She claimed she had taken the money to help Troy when his business was struggling. Unaware of her illegal activities, Troy was stunned when he learned the truth. There was a lot of strain at that point put on the relationship between Troy and Teresa. Troy tells Teresa, maybe you should move out. She was very reluctant, but around March 1999, she does move out. She ended up moving in with her parents. Troy moved in with his brother, Jimmy. Despite their breakup, Troy and Terry continued to see each other on and off. And as the months passed, they began to mend their relationship. Troy was a compassionate, caring person who wanted to see the best out of everyone, including Teresa. And they were in love, they did live together, and he cares about her. The door wasn't entirely closed on her and Troy getting back together. But the possibility of a rekindled romance seems gone forever now that police have found the remains of a burnt body they believe is Troy Timar. 
Coming up, a horrific crime comes into focus. They noticed there was a trail of burned grass leading away from the car. Whoever set the fire was smart enough to make a gasoline fuse. And investigators try to unravel a web of lies. They were seeing each other for about a month and a half before he died. In Warren County, Ohio, a body found in the trunk of a burned-out Mustang is believed to be that of 30-year-old Troy Timar. The area where the car was found gives investigators a possible window into the perpetrator's mindset. This location certainly suggests premeditation because there's nobody around for uh, quite a distance in every direction. It was probably appearing like the ideal place to put a body. No one's prints were found on the car due to the fact that there was a fire. And as uh, all reports were, this was a very, very hot fire. On the ground, investigators locate their first big clue. They find the gun casings uh, near the uh, uh, vehicle. Investigators also find traces of what appears to be a possible accelerant used to ignite the car. They noticed there was a trail of burned grass leading away from the car, suggesting that the car had been doused in gasoline and whoever set the fire was smart enough to make a gasoline fuse. That went uh, from probably 25 feet to the car, which was indicative that someone had lit uh, the fire from a distance. As investigators wrap up the crime scene, the medical examiner conducts an autopsy and confirms the body is, in fact, Troy Timar. It was shocking to see somebody who was had so much promise and was such a likable, fun person to uh, lose his life this way so young. Troy had been about 180 pounds and the weight of the body that they removed from the trunk was, was 96 pounds, which is not uncommon in burn victims of people who've been burned severely. Here was this healthy, attractive, outgoing, athletic young guy, and just to see that happen was very sad. The autopsy also determines that Troy did not die from the fire. The autopsy revealed that Troy had been shot twice in the back. Later, they determined that the gunshots were from a 40 caliber handgun or weapon. He probably died, or almost certainly died, before being burned. And it looked like Troy had bled to death in the car. Their speculation was that the person who fired the shots was leaning in through the driver's side window and fired the shots into the victim as they stood outside the car. With his identity confirmed, detectives take a trip to see Troy's family and deliver the tragic news of his death. They were very close. No one could believe that something ill would happen to Troy. Detectives question Troy's brother and roommate, Jimmy Timar Jr., hoping he can shed some light on Troy's whereabouts in the 24 hours before he was killed. 
Jimmy says that the last time he saw his brother was the day before. He had seen Troy sitting on the couch watching TV. Troy intended to stay home because he had plans to work at a benefit the next day, parking cars as a volunteer. Jimmy went to take a shower. And when he came back out, Troy was gone, and so was the Ford Mustang. Jimmy says when he returned home the next morning at around 10.30 AM, Troy was still gone. Police wonder if Jimmy is hiding anything. First, police had to exclude Jimmy. It is his car, and bad blood between brothers isn't unheard of. So they needed to figure out if Jimmy and Troy had any problems. And what they found out was that they were really very close. I mean, they, they were business partners, they were best friends, they were roommates. He was pretty quickly excluded. He was the most outspoken in the family. I think he was devastated. He was visibly devastated. Jimmy tells detectives that he has no idea who would want to hurt his brother. Troy's just very outgoing, and I don't know anybody that had anything negative to say about Troy. As detectives head back to the station, word of the heinous crime has already spread throughout Deer Park. It's big news for there to be a body in a burning car. That kind of thing just doesn't happen. Uh, it was a rural country community, uh, not much crime. Rarely would we have a murder. Investigators spend the next few days interviewing several of Troy's longtime friends and learn a surprising detail about the 30-year-old's love life. Since his breakup with Terry, Troy had started secretly dating a woman named Gabby. Troy first meets Gabby through friends at a restaurant in Cincinnati. Troy and Gabby hit it off, and they started seeing each other. But they would go off together without friends being aware. Why the secrecy? Troy's friends explain it's because Gabby lives in another town with her husband. Troy was having a relationship with a married woman. Now, police want to speak with both Troy's secret girlfriend, Gabby, and her husband. In a police investigation, when you find out that one party is having an affair, you're going to look at those people as possible suspects. Police meet with Gabby at her home. When she learns of Troy's death, she seems devastated. She seemed genuinely heartsick and hurt. I mean, her, her boyfriend is gone. Investigators question Gabby about her whereabouts during the time Troy went missing on July 3rd. She claims she was with her husband on a camping trip. Police were looking at Gabby, but more than that, they were looking at her husband, because if he had found out that his wife was having an affair with Troy, that would be motive for murder. Coming up, police confront the husband of Troy's secret lover. 
Has Troy tried to contact you here in the last week or two weeks or anything? No, not me. Okay. But the investigation reveals someone is lying. He came home and police were waiting because she had accused him of domestic violence. Detectives in Deer Park, Ohio, are investigating the brutal murder of 30-year-old Troy Timar. 24 hours after his body was found in the trunk of a burning car, police have just uncovered a startling secret about Troy's love life. Troy was having a relationship with a married woman. They were seeing each other for about a month and a half before he died. So that brought the married woman and her husband into a suspect status. With Troy's lover fully cooperating, detectives decide they need to speak with her husband face to face. They ask him to come in for a formal interview. When asked about Troy, Gabby's husband admits that they knew each other. Has Jim or Troy, either one, tried to contact you here in the last week or two weeks or anything? No, not me. The husband did not know that there was a relationship uh, between Troy and his wife. Police don't tell him about his wife's affair, but they do press him on his whereabouts over the holiday weekend. What he was doing is Saturday morning all the way to Saturday evening. We were at home until uh, probably one or two. We probably actually left the house after two. The husband says that afternoon, his boss invited him and his wife on a camping trip. Based on his claims, he and Gabby would have been 60 miles away from the crime scene the night of the murder. His boss also was able to verify that. Investigators were able to determine that both of them were uh, busy out of state, declaring them from uh, as being possible suspects. After finishing their interviews with Gabby and her husband, investigators subpoena Troy's phone records in hopes they might shed some light on his murder. According to his call history, Troy had received several phone calls on the day he disappeared. As they began looking at phone records, they find that uh, Terry had been calling Troy nonstop July 3rd. But one call in particular stands out. Around 9 o'clock that night, detectives verify that Terry had paged Troy and he had called her back. It appears to be the last time Troy had spoken to anyone. And then afterward, there were no more pages, no more phone calls. For police, the fact that Terry was the last person to speak to Troy on the phone raises red flags. And their suspicions only grow when one of Troy's friends contacts detectives. Troy's friend told police, maybe there's somebody else you should talk to. She was talking about Teresa. 
Troy's friend tells police most people assumed Troy's breakup with Terry had been over her embezzlement scheme. But the friend has information about an alarming incident that had occurred just four months prior. What the police had been able to gather was that Troy was arrested in charge with domestic abuse. And when he asked Teresa to move out right around his birthday, he came home and police were waiting because she had accused him of domestic violence. She claimed that she had been thrown down the basement stairs. She was bleeding, and the allegations were enough that Troy was actually arrested and taken to jail. But Teresa had eventually admitted that she fabricated the allegations. We find out that Teresa stabbed herself with sewing needles. Ultimately, she says that she made up the allegations, and Troy's released from jail without charges. That was really the deal breaker for him from, from the looks of it as the way the, the events happened from there. And I think at that point, that's when he wanted her out of his life. It's clear that Troy's relationship with Terry had been volatile. But could it have somehow led to his death? Terry was troubled, and that became pretty clear. She seems to be that kind of person who needed attention and needed some kind of uh, help. But is Terry capable of murder? To answer that question, detectives decide it's time to speak with her. And she agrees to come to the station for an interview. Terry appears devastated about Troy's death and claims that despite their breakup, she and Troy had remained friends. Well, their relationship at that point between Terry and Troy apparently continued off and on until uh, he came up missing. When detectives ask Terry where she was the night of July 3rd, she readily admits she had been with Troy. Troy came to pick her up between 10 and 10.30, and she was very clear about that in her conversations with the detectives. They had gone to a park in Pleasant Ridge and walked around as they used to do. Terry told detectives that she got home about 12.30. Terry claims Troy dropped her back at her parents' house. Terry was dropped off, which then her father sees her go come inside. Anyone who would establish a timeline for Teresa's activities, they were important, such as her parents. To double-check Terry's alibi, detectives pay a visit to her home, where she lives with her parents and her younger brother, Eric Horline. Teresa's dad, Don Sr., is interviewed by police, and he does say that Teresa got home around 12.30 in the morning, which jived with Teresa's alibi. She came home. She calmly went upstairs, came down, and started doing her nails. Terry's father says his son Eric arrived home shortly after, and Eric and Terry stayed up while he went to bed. Investigators sit down with Eric to confirm his father's story, as well as ask him about his own whereabouts earlier that evening. Eric Horline had stated he had been to a AA meeting at 11 o'clock. After the meeting, Eric says he went to Waffle House for a cup of coffee and then home where he visited with Terry. With Terry's alibi confirmed by her family, 
Investigators are back at square one. We didn't know who lit the fire. Just because there was a fire and someone had caused it did not indicate who had done it. The gun casings had to be matched to the actual gun, and they did not have a gun to match. A lot of the evidence, the trace evidence, was burned up in the fire. It was all circumstantial. They just didn't have enough. Months pass with no new leads. Then years. The case officially goes cold. The likelihood of uh, solving a murder that's been uh, languishing for six years is pretty small. Coming up, an unexpected development breathes new life into the case. And that begs the question, why would you lie about what you did that night? And a new clue points the finger at a deadly deceiver. She had this really frightening history of violence. As a SNAP listener, you know the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. With every case I learn about, I'm reminded how much I want to prioritize my vigilance and preparation. That's why I use and recommend Simply Safe Home Security. My cameras have alerted me about trespassers and even given me a sense of security knowing my home is safe even when I'm not there. Simply Safe offers protection for the whole house with advanced sensors that not only detect break-ins, but fires, floods, and other threats to your home and getting you the help you need for each scenario. The indoor security cameras offer privacy shutters to ensure physical privacy when you want it. Plus, you can try Simply Safe for 60 days risk-free. If you don't love it, return your system for a full refund. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/snapped. That's simplysafe.com/snapped. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. It's been four years since 30-year-old Troy Timar was shot to death and his body burned in the trunk of a car. And police aren't any closer to proving who is responsible. After the initial investigation, the case went cold. In April of 2003, a special task force at the Warren County Sheriff's Office is formed to take another look at the stalled murder case. Since Troy's ex, Terry Horline, was the last person to see him alive, the task force focuses on her statement and finds it a little far-fetched. The fact that he had broken up with her, considering her false allegations of domestic violence, that he would be seen alone with her in the middle of the night just seemed very odd. Troy had moved on. He had other interests that did not make sense that he would be with her without some bizarre reason. 
The cold case investigators also re-examine Terry's alibi. Terry told detectives that she got home at about 12.30, and uh, that was more or less confirmed by her family. One of the detectives decides to map out the route Terry claimed she and Troy had traveled that night. One of the things he did was to meticulously follow the route that she claimed in her alibi that Troy and Terry had taken that night when they drove around together. And he followed it, and there was no way that she could have done it in the time that she claimed. They spoke with the park ranger who was responsible for that area, and the park was closed and no one was there. Then that begs the question of why would you lie about what you did that night? To find out, investigators dig deeper into Terry's background. And what they discover is shocking. She had this um, incredibly sketchy or, or frightening background of uh, trying to hurt people and in some cases succeeding. She had a very hard time when men would uh, reject her. She couldn't handle that. Teresa had a tendency to lash out at men, and she did it in very violent ways. Terry's first recorded incident of violent and vengeful behavior toward a man who had rejected her was in 1995, shortly after her second husband filed for divorce. He had told her that he was leaving her, and he wakes up one night, and she's stabbing him in the neck. She barely missed his carotid artery, and uh, that would have certainly killed him, and he was fortunate to live. And then she promptly was in a psychiatric hospital. Back in those days, that was not uncommon. Someone who uh, had psychiatric problems would go to the hospital instead of being prosecuted. And probably with the support of the husband, that's probably why there weren't charges. In less than a year of counseling, she's back. And this kind of pattern continued. The cold case team finds another man Teresa had dated named John Traub. According to John, his trouble with Teresa started in the fall of 1995 when he attempted to end their relationship. We were dating and I was in the process of, um, you know, breaking up with her and just kind of being friends but going different ways. The impending breakup seemed amicable until 3 a.m. on the morning of November 30th, when John was awoken by an intruder. I see the door kind of crack open, and I raise up and went like this in front of my face, and the hatchet hit me right like that and cut those two fingers off. The hatchet-wielding assailant ran off and turned himself into police two days later. It was determined from speaking with the person who admitted that he did that and went to prison. He was convinced to do that by Teresa. But there was nothing that pointed exactly, you know, to her. Terry was never really held accountable for her crimes, and there were several that should have put her in prison. Now, eight years later, investigators wonder if Terry's pattern of violent behavior could have escalated to the murder of Troy Timar. I think her inability to deal with rejection caused her to snap. These repeated incidents of violence kind of made her the better suspect. 
But had Terry acted alone? From her past, it's clear she had a pattern of convincing others to do her dirty work. I think all of the detectives knew that she would have had to have help because he weighed 180 pounds, and how was she going to get him out of the driver's seat and into the trunk of the car? To identify Terry's possible accomplice, cold case detectives focus on Terry's whereabouts the night of the murder. They re-examine her alibi and decide to question her brother, Eric Horline, again. The cold case team was able to investigate the alibis much better. For example, Eric Horline had stated he had been to a AA meeting late at night. Police called the AA facility and talked to a building supervisor who said there was no meeting at that time. His alibi was very shaky and had holes in it. So they became more and more interested in Eric as an accomplice to Terry. Detectives learned that since Troy's murder, Terry appears to have successfully moved on. In 2001, she married a man named Eric Voss, and the two had an 18-month-old son. Terry and I talked about Troy, but he was tragically killed somehow, but she didn't know how. And I asked Terry, did the police question you on that? And she said, yeah, they did, but I was at home, and my father could verify with that. And I said, Terry, I believe there's no way you would have anything to do with that. In June 2005, cold case investigators talk to Terry. Hoping to goad Terry into a confession, investigators confront her with their suspicions. The only way I can see you getting out from under this with some leniency is I'm convinced you didn't act alone, that you had help, if not with the actual murder, with the actual, with the cover-up afterwards, with disposing of Troy's body. I'm giving you an opportunity to tell me who helped you with that. Now, I can probably guess, the one that comes to my mind is your brother, Eric. Oh, God. Just no. because I was close to Troy does not mean I killed him. I don't know why everyone thinks that Because I the truth and the evidence points to you. Despite the pressure, Terry never changes her story. And without a confession, police don't have enough evidence to arrest her. So detectives shift their attention to her brother, Eric. When they decided to bring him in, he was troubled. And this might be the way you'd get that door open to get him to finally admit what he'd done. Coming up. Investigators roll the dice in their interview with Eric Horline. But will their gamble pay off? The lead detective sat down and just said, why don't you just finally tell the truth and set yourself free from this? After years of dead ends, a new investigation into Troy Timar's murder has just unleashed ghosts from his ex-girlfriend's past. She had this uh, really uh, frightening history of violence. When Teresa is rejected, she responds violently, and it's a, it's a pattern with her. 
a pattern that police believe led her to kill Troy Timar after he broke off their relationship. All of the detectives were pretty well convinced that she was the one who had killed Troy, but they just couldn't prove it. In a last-ditch effort to prove Terry's guilt, cold case detectives turned to her brother and suspected co-conspirator, Eric Horline. Eric kind of seemed to spiral out of control. At some point, a few years after Troy's murder, he had a lot more interaction with police. After the case is reopened by cold case investigators, Eric is re-interviewed in 2005. And at this point, his story starts to change. Eric said, I didn't shoot him. The next question was, who did? And that's when the dam finally broke. Eric says that about a month before Troy died, Teresa asked him for a gun that he had. She said she wanted to scare somebody. He explained that he had loaned her a Glock 40, which was the ballistics of the gunshot wounds. Then, around 10.30 p.m. on the night of July 3rd, Eric claims he received a frantic call from his sister. Eric was eating at a Waffle House when he got the call from his sister, Terry, and she asked him to come help her because she'd had a fight with Troy. Eric says that he drove to the location he was told to to pick Terry up, and when he got out of the car, Troy was already dead. He gets there, he sees Troy on the ground outside the driver's uh, seat of the car, bled to death and immediately tells Terry that they need to call an ambulance. Terry says, you've got to help me. At that point, Eric says he made the decision to help his sister get away with murder. He described how he had put Troy's body in the trunk. And that uh, basically resolved the question of how Teresa could have possibly gotten the body into the trunk of the car. Eric says they left the crime scene to get rid of the murder weapon. Teresa tells Eric that the gun is in her purse. She goes and tosses it in a trash bin. The siblings return to the scene later that morning to douse the car and Troy's body with gasoline. The fire was only burning for just a short amount of time. And that was at four something in the morning. After his confession, Eric Horline is arrested and charged with aggravated murder. We agreed to reduce the charges uh, as part of the deal to get him to testify. Eric Horline's testimony was vital. We were able to verify several of the facts in his statement that implicated his sister. Eric takes the deal, finally giving investigators the evidence they need to arrest Terry. I was shocked that Terry was arrested. I never knew all the problems that she had. She never showed any kind of violence when I was around. She was so quiet. I was just very shocked to hear that she could actually be a part of something like that. On October 23rd, 2006,
Terry Voss finally goes to trial for the murder of Troy Timar. She pleads not guilty. The prosecution opens their case by presenting their theory that Terry called Troy on July 3rd and convinced him to meet her at the abandoned farmhouse. Police think she might have threatened to hurt herself. Troy, being a good man, probably cared enough still about her at that point to try and do something to intervene and talk to her at least. And so he went to see her. Prosecutors theorize when Troy arrived and learned that Terry had manipulated him once again, he had balked at her advances. Enraged that he did not want her back, Terry pulled out a gun and shot him twice while she stood outside of his driver's side window. I think he just got suckered into coming out that night with her. He showed up and she killed him. Terry's brother testifies that he helped her dispose of the body. But Terry's defense tries to discredit Eric's testimony. They tried to establish that Eric was unreliable and that pointed the finger at Eric as being the one who had committed the murder. The jury isn't convinced. On October 26th, Terry is convicted of aggravated murder. She received life in prison with the eligibility for parole after serving 30 years. For his part in covering up the murder, Eric receives a much lighter sentence. Eric Horline pled to abuse of a corpse and tampering with evidence and received a sentence of five years in prison, the maximum penalty for those offenses. I personally feel like Eric should have had more time. He may not have been the one to actually kill Troy, but he helped. For those who spent years longing for justice, Terry's conviction is a long time coming. It's scary to think that if her brother hadn't confessed, that she would still be out there. And who knows how many more people she would have tried to hurt. This was a sad case uh, among so many that we see just because Troy had so much to offer. And it's just um, kind of heartbreaking to see somebody lose their life this way. In 2006, Eric Horline was sentenced to five years in prison. He was released in 2011. Teresa Voss is serving her sentence at the Dayton Correctional Institution and will become eligible for parole in July 2038. She and Eric Voss divorced in 2007. Troy Tamar's life and legacy is memorialized at Deer Park High School, where the press box is named in his honor. For more information on Snapped, go to Oxygen.com. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed 
guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.